It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is here. We've got questions. We've got answers. And Steve makes a shocking admission. He's not worried about upgrading Windows XP. He thinks he's safe. Find out why next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 445, recorded March 4th, 2014. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 184. Security Now is brought to you by Audible.com. To download the free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. And by ProXPN. ProXPN is a virtual private network that allows you to use the internet the way you want to, anonymously and without oversight. For 20% off your new account, go to ProXPN.com slash twit and use the code SN20. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers you and uh, your security online, your loved ones, your privacy, and all of that, too, with this guy here, the explainer-in-chief, Mr. Stephen Tiberius Gibson of the Gibson Research <laughs> you know, Company. You know that Tiberius has made it onto my Wikipedia page? I know. <laughs> I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. Hey, Steve, it's good I've... to see you once again. Likewise, Leo. Yeah. Great to be with you yeah. again, as always. Q&A episode this week. We do, despite the fact that Apple has given us a the document we've been dreaming of, for uh, and our listeners have been dreaming of, I've been dreaming of, we've all been, but I just can't, I wanted to give it its own podcast, and we haven't done a Q&A for so long that um, we're going to cover that all, the entire next week's podcast, and, and I'm, I'm praying that nothing happens. Let's ask the hackers, please. <laughs> leave leave off. Do give any, us a week, please. <laughs> don't, don't do anything dramatic. We have a relatively light news week this week, which is good. Um, I want another one for the forthcoming week so that we'll, we won't, you know, so we'll have time to do this fabulous Apple document justice, which will be the topic for next week. Yeah, but- we talked about it on MacBreak Weekly just last hour, and I and I, kn- I was really hoping that you would do this because Apple, uh, you know, first of all, I'm not qualified to uh, judge the contents of it, uh, and I'm really curious if what Apple says is makes sense. And then they used some terms that were new to me, like tangled. Well, know. and Apple is less forthcoming, unfortunately, about this stuff. I mean, for example, there's a huge grumble in the industry that there, there's still no information from Apple about exactly how that extra go-to fail line got stuck into the code. You know, certainly they have auditing tools. They know what session added the code. I mean, they have to know, you know, with modern source code management technology, they know how that happened, yet nothing. So Yeah, I'd really like ominous. to hear more from Apple on that. And, and wasn't there just some uh, shareholder deal that happened where they voted not to adopt industry best practices for protecting their users' data? Um, well, I didn't I see that. Saw, I saw it go by um, but didn't have a chance to track it down. Apparently, um, uh, Waz is on board, but the some something was done with proxies, and they 
they voted not to adopt what the EFF and others have recommended for protecting hmm. their consumers. Hmm. So it's like, OK. And then, uh, in fact, we're going to lead the show with Bruce Schneier's commentary on the Apple SSS. <laughs> I can't wait to so, hear what Bruce says. Bruce weighed in. We've got another major certificate mistake was found and fixed, but it's widespread. Um We've lost another Bitcoin exchange that just declared itself bankrupt. Really? Another uh, one? Another one. Oh, uh, we've got a peeping Tom uh, problem. This is this is old enough. This was late last week that uh, it was the, the, you probably know about it, the Yahoo webcam catastrophe from uh, from the UK. A mistake was found in Threema's UI. Uh, and I've got some more news about Squirrel. We're going to... Uh, internationalize it and make it multilingual. I want to thank you for text secure because uh, that was the uh, Moxie Marlin Spikes uh, secure SMS replacement for right. Android. That, and I've been using it all week and it really has just replaced uh, my standard text uh, uh, tool. So it's a very good SMS tool and then has this additional encryption uh, availability. There was, there was some feedback I heard about it having problems in international contexts. Well, that might be. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if it doesn't affect you, all of then that is not fixable. I mean, that's just code. And, right. uh, you know, apparently he's working hard on iOS and uh, Windows Phone versions and so forth. I think I, that's that has the best chance of being a great universal secure uh, SMS right. system, um, oh, SMS over Internet. But let's uh, so we got a lot to do. Let me we're going to get to questions in a bit. We, we've got your uh, news. Let's talk real quickly about. Uh, one of our sponsors, Audible.com. I know Steve's a big reader, loves to read, but he's not an Audible listener. Visually, a visual not, reader. <laughs> not everybody is. I understand that completely. I uh, that's it, it, To each his own, that's why we offer a free trial so you can get that first book and see if you like it. But I got to tell you, if you... Uh, if once you discover Audible, if it's if it's your cup of tea, and it is many of ours cup of tea, it is a great place to get books. One hundred fifty thousand books. When a new title comes out, uh, almost always it comes out at the same time as the book comes out on Audible.com. That's nice. So if you are a big bestseller fan, especially if you like the thrillers, you know the Clive Cusslers, um, you know the Nora Roberts, they always have the latest. But they're really good about nonfiction as well. I listen to a lot of nonfiction. Michio Kaku's new book is uh, coming out, The Future of the Mind, The Scientific Quest to Understand, Enhance, and Empower the Mind. He's going to be our guest on Triangulation in two weeks, so you might want to read cool. this. Um, so let, let me get you one of these for free. Really, the big challenge is which book? I mean, there's so many to choose from. Did you see The Monuments Men? Read the book that it's based on. That's there. In fact, the book that many movies are based on, Labor Day, not a great movie, but Joyce Maynard's book is incredible. Um, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And some of these, John le Carre. Oh, I love John le Carre. I'd love to go through all of his stuff. When you're listening to a great performance on Audible.com, the book comes alive in your mind. It really does. You're hearing it uh, better than a movie because your mind is better at making uh, the, the thing. For instance, Jules Verne's Journey to the Center of the Earth, read by... Tim Curry. I mean, imagine that. Do you remember a visit to Humphrey Davy, the celebrated chemist, paid me in 1825? Not the least, since I only came into the world 19 years afterwards. Well, 
Humphrey Davy came to see me in passing through Hamburg. I love Jules Verne. And now you're going to love this. There's so many to choose from. So here's the deal. Let's get you that first one free. Go to audiblepodcast, audiblepodcast.com slash security now. And you'll be signing up for the gold account. That means your first book is free. Your first month is free. You even get the Daily Digest of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal for free for 30 days. Cancel in those first 30 days. You'll pay nothing. But uh, I don't think you will. But that's what, the point is to give you a chance, if you've never listened to a book, to listen and see how you like it. Richard Dawkins. Oh, he's got a new hmm. one. The Greatest Show on Earth, The Evidence for Evolution. Now, Dawkins is one of the few authors who does a great job reading. You, want, you like British accents? He's got a great... In the electronic booklet. Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely listen to this. It is never essential to see the pictures... The text always explains fully what is being discussed. Oh, that's another thing he mentions, which is important. If there are illustrations uh, that you need to see, they always offer an electronic booklet to go along with the audiobook so you can see the, the, the figures and diagrams. Sometimes nice. on nonfiction, that's very, very helpful. Yeah. Best collection of science fiction, too. Audiblepodcast.com slash security. Now, get your free book today. I know, I know you're going to love it unless you're Steve Gibson. Then it's that's fine. That's fine. <laughs> well, I mean, it makes such a it makes so much sense to have them as a sponsor for a podcast because yeah, you listen. Where, where the, yeah, right. I mean, because it means that our listeners have a lifestyle where they're commuting or they're jogging or exercising or whatever they're doing that you know gives them that mode. Right. I just sort of don't have that. I'm working from my. You know, you I, don't have a commute. commute. If you was, had a commute, my commute was yeah. down the hall yeah. to the coffee machine no, this morning. If you had a commute, uh, oh, it, it would change everything. Absolutely. I mean, especially if I was driving, so that I had to, you know, I had my, I couldn't have my eyes on right. a book. I had, exactly. I had the eyes, I had to have my eyes front. Exactly. Then, oh my goodness, it, I would be completely flipped around. So, uh, Bruce Schneier, what does he say uh, about go to well, fail? Hmm? So this is. Last Thursday, Bruce uh, blogged and then also added an update on the same day, also on Thursday, February 27th. So he, <laughs> the title was, Was the iOS SSL Flaw Deliberate? Last October, writes wow. Bruce, I know, I speculated on the best ways to go about designing and implementing a software backdoor. I suggested three characteristics of a good backdoor. Low chance of discovery, high deniability if discovered, and minimal conspiracy to implement. The critical iOS vulnerability that Apple patched last week is an excellent example. Look at the code. What caused the vulnerability is a single line of code, a second go-to-fail statement. Since that statement isn't a conditional, it causes the whole procedure to terminate. The flaw is subtle and hard to spot while scanning the code. It's easy to imagine how this could have happened by error. And it would have been trivially easy for one person to add the vulnerability. Was this done on purpose? I have no idea, writes Bruce. But if I wanted to do something like this on purpose, this is exactly how I would do it. That's fair. And then he, That's fair. Yeah. yeah. And, and they, he, he, he edited to add after the blog was first posted. He said, 
if the Apple auditing system is any good, they would be able to trace this errant go-to line not just to the source code check-in details, but to the specific login that made the change. And they would quickly know whether this was just an error or a deliberate change by a bad actor. Does anyone know what's going on inside Apple? Yeah, why so, aren't they talking to us? Yeah, and, and, and again, this that's why they're... Their publication of this substantial security disclosure document, which is the topic of next week's podcast, it's so refreshing to get that. I mean, I, I remember, you know, even the, the iOS 7.0.6 update that fixed this flaw that we've talked about last week, the go-to-fail flaw, and that Bruce just blogged about, even that just sort of just sort of, there was just like nothing in the description, it said well, that's typical, uh, fi fixes an SSL problem. Yeah, this oh, is well, completely nice? how they are, um, and I don't really agree with their their way of doing things. But that is kind of how they do them. They've never been it's, very forthright. Right, they're behaving in more like a consumer product company than a computer company, and I so I can understand that they're you know I mean they dropped the word computer from their name. They they see themselves as a consumer product company. Yet they're selling computers. I mean, they're selling high-tech gadgets that have this kind of vulnerability. You know, your can opener is a consumer product, and it doesn't have a problem with SSL vulnerabilities. But, you know, iOS devices do. So, you know, they're sort of straddling, and, and it would be nice if they were more forthcoming. I think, you know, we'll see how they evolve in the future. But this document, as I said again, you know, does represent... Yeah. You know, a real, a much needed disclosure. I would like to see so a similar document explaining their code testing and validation process. Uh, right. It it begs to be explained now because that error is such a ridiculous error that it should have been caught many many ways, and yeah. the fact that it didn't get caught uh, really puzzles me. Well, and Bruce doesn't note here, but others have. I keep reading it that. You know, it was just a month after this was introduced into the code base for Mac OS X and iOS 6 that the NSA slides that Edward Snowden disclosed indicate that Apple joined Prism. <laughs> this is like, okay, well, again, we we don't know. But, ooh, does that timing look painful. So, Well, yeah. and if that's the truth... That would explain why Apple doesn't say anything. And so the the longer they go without explaining this. Oh, and, and Leo, can you imagine? I mean, we know what the install base of, of iPhones is globally. Can you imagine on some level the pressure they must be under by the NSA to make yeah. to make surveillance possible? I mean, there, there. We now know there. There is pressure at some level. There is pressure. So, you know, I, I just and for, and for example, this is why I suspended my work years ago on CryptoLink because this was this was clear this was coming, and I didn't want to be in that kind of pressure. I mean, you know, we know what 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 Ladar Levinson went through, and we've since heard evidence of other companies being pressured to make this information available. Apple has to be a target of that, given, you know, I mean, I, everybody I see is holding an iPhone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it turns out, however, it's not just Apple who has certificate verification problems. Um, just, ju- I mean, this is hot news. Just, just happened. Uh, there is an alternative SSL TLS open source package, GNU TLS. And everyone talks about open SSL as as like sort of the industry standard. That's the benchmark against which you test things to make sure that, you know, you're running. Uh, and for good reason. Open SSL is very mature. The problem with open SSL is that its license is is not uh, GPL compatible. So if you if you want to do GPL compatibility, you need to use GNU TLS, which is the alternative. So right now on the gnutls.org site, on their security.html page, um, where they list known problems that they have they have encountered and fixed, fresh top of the page says a vulnerability was discovered that affects the certificate verification functions <laughs> whoops, of all GNU TLS versions. A specially crafted certificate could bypass certificate validation checks. The vulnerability was discovered during an audit of GNU TLS for Red Hat. And Red Hat has this linked also from their site. They asked themselves the question, who is affected by this attack? Anyone using certificate authentication for any version of GNU TLS. And then how to mitigate the attack? Upgrade to the latest GNU TLS version, which is 3.2.12 or 3.1.22, if you're still on the 3.1 track. Or apply the patch for GNU TLS 2.12.x. Now, okay, so, for example, who's using this in the field? Well, um, Apache, for the last three years, could be configured to use GNU TLS as the means for getting TLS version 1.2 support because it was available well before OpenSSL was. So, you know, many Apache servers may be using this. Uh, Gnome, Center IM, XM, EXIM, uh, WeChat, MUT, Wireshark, SLRN, Lynx, Cups, and uh, Gnomint, among others. Wow, that's apparently, everybody. there are that's everything. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it is the you know, it is an alternative SSL package that is, has huge usage, and now we know. That all I mean, everybody using these needs to look for updates. This just happened. It's going to take a while to to integrate the updated uh, TLS into the specific packages, but it has it has to be the fact that it's coming because uh, it is it needs to get done. There basically we have a certificate authentication bypass in a in another very heavily used open source library. Whoops. Don't and use it was found GNU by TLS. an audit. Don't yeah. use GNU TLS. Mm. Well, and the problem is it's 
it's not something that end users use. It is a library right. built into all these other applications. And I mean, it's otherwise it's robust and solid and great. And I mean, and, and you know, it's feature packed. It supports all this, the state of the art protocols. It's a great library, but a mistake got made and, and happily got fixed. And Actually, according to uh, Howard Chu, who discovered it, it's it seems like a pretty messy piece of code. He says, I see the code makes liberal use of stir length and stir cat when it needs to be using counted length data blobs everywhere. In short, yeah. the code is fundamentally broken. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's not going to be a go to fail fix. Use a different no. library. <laughs> I think is the, is the key. The problem is open SSL looks very much the same. If you look at some of this code, which has evolved over a long period of time, it is, I mean, it's really sad looking code. It's just like, okay, well, let's just hope it works. Um, Edward Snowden did another document dump. Uh, the story got picked up, of course, by theguardian.com that has been uh, one of the major carriers of his uh uh, document releases over time and this one discloses this was this is news from last week that i saw and i was like oh goodness it's a little problematic um the uh the uk's spy agency gchq it turns out was deliberately collecting webcam images from many millions <laughs> oh no Oh, yes, of Yahoo users with the help of the NSA. The program, unfortunately, was called Optic Nerve. <laughs> and the biggest problem, Leo, was that there was so much nudity in these in, in the images that were being captured that it created a problem for their surveillance program because, you know, all of the people in GCHQ wanted to be looking at these pictures. So uh, it started, it, it was in prototype form back in 08, and after which it went live, and, and we know of, at least as of 2012, it was still active. Um, TheGuardian.com in their story reports, uh, their, their, the URL says GCHQ NSA webcam images internet yahoo so i imagine if you google that phrase gchq nsa webcam images internet yahoo it'll come right up the guardian uh, .com they said documents dating between 2008 and 2010 explicitly state that a surveillance program codenamed optic nerve collected still images what it did is it took us to manage the bandwidth you know i mean you can't just be recording the video streams of millions of yahoo uh users because <laughs> you know even they, that would strain even the nsa's data storage capability so they took a they, they took a frame every five minutes from all these people um as a sort of a as, and they also said it was a trade-off for for you know like some paying some heed to privacy concerns. So collected still images of Yahoo webcam chats in bulk. This is bulk collection. This is not targeted. This is all of the web Yahoo webcam chats they could collect. They were snapping a, a still frame every five minutes and saved them to agency databases, 
regardless of whether individual users were an intelligence target or not. Awful. In one, I know. Awful. So much for metadata, bulk metadata collection. This is bulk Awful. photo photo collection. And, of course, David Cameron in the U.K. has introduced Internet filters for all ISPs so that you could, you just so you can't see this kind of stuff, but they're collecting it in their spy bureau. And it's highly attractive <laughs> to be well, like I'm to glad be browsed it, yeah. through. Web 1013 so, our chapter says it shouldn't be called optic nerve. It should be called optic perv. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. And yeah. Uh, in one six month period in 08 alone, the agency collected webcam imagery including substantial quantities of sexually explicit communications from more than 1.8 million Yahoo users, user accounts globally. Yahoo, of course, their response, you can imagine, I mean, they were livid, saying that this was a whole new level of violation of our users' privacy. Um, GCHQ, the story goes on to say, does not have the technical means to make sure no images of U.K. or U.S. citizens are collected and stored by the system, meaning that it was just sweeping up everything completely independent of, of its point of origin, saying, and they're, you know, they're disclaiming responsibility, saying, well, we can't filter. Sorry, we don't have the means. Um, it, and the story says, and there are no restrictions under U.K. law to prevent Americans' images being accessed by British analysts without an individual warrant. The documents describe GCHQ's struggle to keep the large store of sexually explicit imagery collected by Optic Nerve away from the eyes of its staff, though there is little discussion about the privacy implications of storing this material in the first place. So they're not saying, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're not sure we should be collecting it. They're saying, yeah, we want it. But the problem is, how do we get the nudity out? Because we wish that our staff wasn't looking at all of that. The story says Optic Nerve was based on collecting information from GCHQ's huge network of Internet cable taps which was then processed and fed into systems provided by the NSA. Webcam information was fed into NSA's Keyscore research tool, we talked about before, and NSA research was used to build the tool which identified Yahoo's webcam traffic. So that says NSA was doing the, the tap filtering technology, which, of course, we know from our coverage here, they, they certainly have. And finally, sexually explicit webcam material proved to be a particular problem for GCHQ. As one documentally delicately put it, quote, unfortunately, it would appear that a surprising number of people using webcam conversations to show intimate parts of their body to the other person. Also, the fact that the Yahoo software allows more than one person to view a webcam stream without necessarily sending a reciprocal stream means that it appears sometimes to be used for broadcasting pornography. And that's what GCHQ was collecting. 
You know, basically, you know, about uh, what the number I saw was 11 percent of the of the Yahoo webcam stream was sexually explicit. Eleven percent. So Eleven percent. So that's that's how what what people are. Eleven percent of people are using it for sending that sort of content to each other. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it's being snapped every a frame of that's being snapped every five minutes and stored and viewed. That's the that's the interesting thing. <laughs> wow. Um, in other sort of interesting news. Um, Two German freemail sites, web.de and gmx.net, have both begun tricking Firefox and Chrome users into removing ad block. So they're, they're free email sites. Yeah. They don't want their users blocking ads. Sure, that's how they pay for the site. Yeah, yeah. but rather than detecting it, and telling them to disable ad block, what they're doing is they're faking a a Mozilla security alert. Oh, that's too at, bad. I know. At the top of the screen, it's designed to look exactly like the, the little bar that, that we see sometimes when Firefox wants right. you to verify something. Bar. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yep. Um, in fact, if, if you click the link and scroll down, you can see a sample of it. And if you click on their smaller picture, you get a larger one. I meant to, to embed one in here in the show notes, but I just forgot when I was putting it together. Um, so it presents a, a false browser alert. If you click on it, it takes you to a page explaining about the dangers, unquote, of using ad blocking software saying that it filters the content of pages, which, of course, it does by design. I mean, ad, ad blockers do by design and induces false security alerts, which, okay, is what this was a false security. <laughs> induces our false security alerts. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. So the good news is the Mozilla's te- security team are looking into it. Um, and you can tell it's a fake notice because it scrolls up with the page. You know, oh, yeah. a, a, a real alert is being presented by the browser, so it doesn't scroll away when you, you know you scroll the page under the real alert. But this one scrolls off, so it's like, okay, guys, you know, I, and we, you and I've talked about this. No one has a problem if a site detects that you're blocking their ads and they're ad supported. I completely endorse the idea that they have the right to say, hey, you need to turn off, you make an exception, whitelist our site for ads because that's how we make our money. That's how we provide you this free webmail service. No one's going to complain about that. Or if you do, go change providers. But, you know, don't be slimy like this, yeah, this is and, slimy. and convince people that, I mean, because what you're then doing is you're removing that, of course, from their browser if they if they are confused by this and, and right. do so, which right. is, you know, it's wrong. That's a good point. It's not just for their site. It's for everybody. Right. right. Yeah. And the fact is, as we've covered, ad blocking is actually increases your security to the degree that ads are sneaking malware right, into your system, right. which we've been talking about as a as apparently a problem. they. Uh, the, this is a German language uh, uh, article from Heise Online, but uh, apparently they have stopped after protests. Both companies. Oh, good. Yeah. Oh, good to know. Yeah. Well, I hope we gave them a little more, a little heat 
to, to that decision. We have stopped. Steve Gibson told us not to. So after we talked about it Tuesday, but in no way related to us talking about it last Tuesday, Mount Gox did formally declare uh, bankruptcy. So Mount Gox is gone. Uh, TechCrunch carried an, an interesting piece written and, you know, full disclosure, written by Brian Armstrong, who's the CEO of Coinbase, which is an alternative and uh, an alternative exchange for Bitcoin of good repute. Coinbase, you know, my favorite zero block app for iOS lists Coinbase among, there's like a set of four now that you can rotate among and Coinbase is one of them. Um, and looks like, you know, I mean, these guys are doing everything they can to be an 100% stand-up um, exchange for Bitcoin. So his, his piece was, uh, there, he brought up a couple points I just wanted to share that I thought were, were worth mentioning. His piece was titled, What's Not Being Said About Bitcoin? This was covered by TechCrunch on uh, Friday, February 28th. Um, his point that I that he makes I think is really good and and Brian focuses on the notion of Bitcoin not being as much a store of value as an enabler for an open payment system, which I think is really a great point. He makes he says an open payment network is a game changer and that what was needed was a system to manage payments in an open fashion. That is some means of preventing duplicate spending so that you couldn't, you know, so that when you spent money, you couldn't respend the same money and thus be, you know, create fraudulent transactions. Until Bitcoin came along, we didn't have a means to do that. There was no, no open network solution that didn't involve a centralized clearinghouse. Bitcoin provides that. Well, that's it, you know, a really it, interesting contextualization of it that yes. I hadn't really thought about. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's a fair way to, if you characterize it that way, that really has value. Well, and for example, Overstock just noted that in the last two years, they've done a million dollars wow. of, of transactions in Bitcoin and that the average Overstock.com cart the Bitcoin average cart size is $216, which is 30% higher than for people using dollars, hmm. U.S. dollars. People spend so, more Bitcoin. Yes, they, will, they, they spend more equivalent U.S. dollars if it's in Bitcoinage than in actual dollars. So, I mean, as that, as that spreads to retailers, as retailers begin to understand that people spend more money if they're shopping in Bitcoin. I mean, a third more. That's dramatic. I mean, that's that is that's world shaking. That mm -hmm. changes things. So, uh, Brian, quoting from the article, Brian said, around San Francisco, New York City, and other major cities across the globe, Bitcoin acceptance is rapidly moving into brick-and-mortar shops, restaurants, and even professional businesses like dentists and law firms. He said consumers are paying with a quick scan of a QR code or using technologies like NFC and Bluetooth low energy. 
Merchants are enjoying instant transactions at lower fees, and this momentum will only accelerate in 2014, with thousands more companies beginning to accept Bitcoin. So anyway, I uh, I just I like that notion. I, reframing it as a transaction. Remember last week when I was looking at um, blockchain.info, and I and I encouraged our users to go look, you know, click those links down in the lower right of the homepage of blockchain.info, where you where they they're like enumerating the transactions and the dollar flows, and it's like, oh my god! I mean, this there. This this is not just strange people in dark bedrooms with mining machines glowing and wondering whether they're minting more bitcoinage than the power is they're consuming. I mean, there is an there is an active transactional market that exists now. I mean, that's that's actually happening as, as people experiment with a, with with this Bitcoin network. My concern, of course, I, I mean, I'm wondering is. Does this thing scale? Because um, you know, when I, I like tried to catch my wallet up to date, and you need to download gigabytes of past blockchain in order to to get yourself current. And it's like, okay, uh, what's going to happen in ten years? How how does that happen? So and I, I have I have seen that there are solutions to that in the works, um, and and ways of not having to drag the entire history of the blockchain with you but at the moment that's what you do if you just use the sort of the standard brain ted uh, bitcoin wallet but anyway i I think brian's point is uh mount gox hurt the community somewhat but didn't kill it uh he, he ends up saying mount gox is in no way the end of bitcoin quite the opposite in fact just as the closing of silk road in 2013 led to the biggest boost in value of the of the bitcoin to date weeding out immature companies and bad actors is paving the way for a legitimate bitcoin marketplace while it may be coincidence that dur- that during the mount gox debacle coinbase hit 1 million consumer wallets it is also representative of what legitimate Bitcoin companies have known through the big ups and the low, and the low lows, which is the Bitcoin is fundamentally the best payment system for the Internet era. And, and on the heels of that, yeah. just, just now, if you bring up, if you click that link for flexcoin.com, Leo. Oopsies. Yeah. yeah. F-L-E-X-C-O-I-N.com. Wiped out. By theft, their their web page now says Flexcoin is shutting down. On March second, twenty fourteen, Flexcoin was attacked and robbed of all coins in the hot wallet. The attacker made off with eight hundred and ninety six bitcoins. That's something like six hundred fifty thousand dollars. Dividing them into these two addresses. And they list the two addresses where the Bitcoins were transferred to. As Flexcoin, uh, continuing to read their web pages, Flexcoin does not have the resources, assets, or otherwise to come back from this loss. We are closing our doors immediately. Yeah. They said users who put their coins into cold storage will be contacted by Flexcoin and asked to verify their identity. Once identified, cold storage coins will be transferred out free of charge. 
cold storage coins were held offline and not within each of the and not within reach of the attacker. All other users, meaning those who were storing their aggregate six hundred and fifty five thousand dollars worth of value online, will be directed to Flexcoin's terms of service located at flexcoin.com slash 118.html, a document which was agreed on upon signing up with Flexcoin. And we already know what the terms of service says. It says, we're not responsible for any loss of your coins, uh, but we are sorry. Um, then it says, it ends saying, Flexcoin will attempt to work with law enforcement to trace the source of the attack. Uh-huh. Updates will be posted on Twitter as soon as they become available. So, you know, the lesson here is, once again, do not entrust your large store of Bitcoins to an online service. Uh, You just can't at this day and age. You have to store your wallet. I mean, don't even trust it on your computer. You store your wallet offline. Um, Right now, this is immature. The market is immature. And um, as, as we said, I mean, this was the advice we ended up with talking about this last week is, you know, transfer coins in when you need to do exchanges but but otherwise and don't do it fast <laughs> move quickly <laughs> don't don't leave them sitting around it's yeah. just you know i mean you know the, the the podcast covers the the huge problems websites have keeping hackers out right. i mean it's it's a weekly topic and there's nowhere hackers want to mo- be more than where the money is i mean who was it that famously said that's why we rob banks willie sutton because yeah, that's where the, the money is. The bank robber. So it's why they're robbing websites, you know, Bitcoin currency exchanges. Is, that's where the money is. And and the problem is we also know how difficult it is to create really secure websites. If you do anything that is convenient, like, oh, using, you know, jQuery or, you know, a SQL server on the back end. I mean, you, you immediately open yourself up to to attacks on those things that you're using to make your job easy. And it means you, you, you're you responsible for filtering to a level that, you know, it's like, oh, well, maybe we're going to get around to that soon. I mean, the news from that we have heard from Mt. Gox is not encouraging. That the, 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 the nice-sounding guy who founded it and put it together was aware that there were problems for some period of time and talked about getting to them when they had a chance. And as we understand it now, those problems are what sunk them, that there were people using that, 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 double, that double withdrawal scheme that we talked about a couple of weeks ago to essentially drain them over time. Uh, it, it was happening. So, ouch. Um, you know, at this point, uh, it really looks like there's a future, but you know, it is, as I have said, it's still early days and a little bit of a problem with Threema. Um, this is the, of course, the alternative, very secure, uh, protocol instant messaging app. Someone posted a workaround for their four digit pin used optionally to protect sensitive data. 
Um, and it's an interesting hack. So you in Threema, you can say, I want to protect sensitive data with a, a four-digit PIN. And Threema says that we will delete the sensitive data after 10 failed attempts. So 10 attempts to guess a four-digit PIN, which if randomly chosen, has one is one of 10,000 numbers. So, okay, that's pretty secure, given that, you know, 10 strikes and you're really out. It turns out they made a mistake in programming that. They're, they've been notified. I'm sure we'll see a fix shortly. The mistake is that they don't delete the data after your 10th failed try until after you respond to the dialogue, which informs you that you've had your 10 tries, your sensitive data is being deleted. They should delete it first, then bring up the dialogue where they say, we deleted it already, sorry. I don't know exactly what the dialogue says, but you have to click OK. Well, it turns out that the way iOS operates, and this is on the iOS platform, um, while the dialogue is present, it's, it's what's termed, at least in the Windows world, as a modal dialogue. A modal dialogue is one of those where the rest of the UI behind the dialogue is locked. It's frozen. Um, it's modal in meaning that all user interface is all user input is directed to that dialogue so you're unable to to communicate to talk to to do any ui events to the app that's floating behind the dialogue that that is in front and on top but if you close the app and rerun it the app comes up and then begins the process of building, rebuilding the modal dialogue until it does, the, the, the underlying app can receive user input. And so what this guy who discovered this problem found out is that he could try 10 times and then he gets the notice that the, the data is going to be deleted Unfortunately, it isn't a notice that we have already securely deleted the data. Um, and so what he did is he shuts down Threema, starts it up again, and he can squeeze another guess in before the OK comes up. And then he does it again and again and again and again. So it does allow you to bypass the 10 strikes in, in order to guess the pin. And if you were sufficiently patient, you could eventually find it. Um, and I wonder, I wonder what happens. I didn't think it through. If you found it and, but it's still displaying the okay dialogue. I wonder how you actually use Threema. Anyway, I don't know, but interesting little, uh, glitch with iOS, um, and the way they handle their okay uh, and and for and it's a reason why you have to be very careful about this kind of stuff uh you know, i've encountered this for example with squirrel um where you want to one of the options is to have squirrel delete 
its knowledge of your password um, when you screen save or you suspend. Well, you don't want to do that upon resumption from suspending or screen saving. You want to do that when the app receives notification that's in the process of happening. So, I mean, it, you know, it re- these do have security implications and you need to really think this through and be careful about it. So, you know, we know that the three of my guys, are, their hearts are in the right place and I'm sure they, you know, will fix it if they haven't already. Speaking of Squirrel, um, I, I posted at the beginning of the weekend my intention in the news group, the, the grc.squirrel news group, uh, to think about internationalizing and making Squirrel multilingual. The response was swift and very positive. Uh, a number of people who read the news group and have been following along said, oh, yes, 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 yes. I hoped you were considering doing that. I'm, 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 I have just a few panels left of UI to design. And then the UI, as far as I know, uh, is completely laid out. And it's turned out very nicely. I'm really happy with the way it looks. And so as I then immediately start writing code, of course, the question is, what do I do about other languages? So I'm going to explicitly put all of the text strings of the product in a separate file and allow that file to be edited. Originally, I was thinking I would just you know, create a simple text file that anybody who wanted to create a, a different language version of Squirrel they could, and who spoke English and another tongue uh, could, could open the file and just replace the strings with their, their localized language version, uh, provide it back, and we'd be able to use it. Well, it turns out that there's a better solution. Um, there's, a, there's a group called crowdin.net. Actually, crowdsourcing translation is all over the Internet. I mean, it, just something that makes sense. I've got, I found a, an online service that I really like. I'm very impressed with it. Uh, it's called crowdin, C-R-O-W-D, as in crowd, <laughs> I-N.net. And I wrote to them yesterday, told them what I was doing, and and asked if we would qualify for their free open source and academic license. And they said, oh, absolutely. We're delighted that you have found us. I don't know. Couldn't really tell if they know, knew me and Squirrel, but they sounded like they did from their reply. So what this, what, what this will allow is essentially it'll create a platform for – for sort of managing the internationalization of Squirrel's user interface. Um, uh, there's, you know, many people have since said, hey, I, you know, I've got three languages I want to do and, and so forth. So it looks like uh, w- with uh, relatively little effort and no, you know, very little slowdown at all in the, in the development, uh, we'll be able to get Squirrel internationalized. So what I will do is, as soon as I get the UI finished, I am going to um, build the UI of Squirrel first so that we can essentially overlap that while I'm working on gluing all of the inner technology to the UI surface. That will allow me to publish the user interface through crowdin.net and then invite all of our listeners who speak other languages 
to go over there and and spending whatever time they're able to to work with everybody else who is doing it and convert the user interface to whatever languages they know. Um, that'll allow me then to pull all that back and to create individual language versions of Squirrel. So um, I'm really excited about that. I think that'll help it a lot. That's exciting, yeah. Yeah, and I did get a nice note from a Caleb Marble in Rockford, Illinois, very short. <laughs> he said, Rockford, Illinois, Prince, save me from this place. So I don't know why. Is, has the weather been bad in Illinois? I guess maybe, you know, this was dated February 21st. So certainly, you know, this time of the year, maybe he was buried under snow. Uh, anyway, he just said, thank you for a fantastic product. Yeah, by the way, yes, the weather's been bad in Illinois, really ah. bad. <laughs> yes. Thank you, thank you for a fantastic product. Speaking of a Spinrite, of course, he said, in the few months I've used Spinrite, it has recovered four drives from failure, including one hard drive for a local nonprofit whose and he used he made up an acronym VID, meaning very important documents, uh. dating back to 2002, were stored on a single shared NAS, you know, network attack storage, attached storage, from the early 2000 era with no backups. He says in Prenz, I later introduced them to Carbonite. Thank Leo for me. Then he said, thanks again, another satisfied customer. And Caleb, thank you for the report and for letting me share it. We'll get to your questions and uh, Steve's answers in a moment. But first, a word about ProXPN. You've heard us talk about OpenVPN solutions. ProXPN is an OpenVPN provider, Steve approved, that gives you OpenVPN, which means secure access to the Internet even when you're at an insecure place. Normally we think of that as an open Wi-Fi access, but frankly these days it could be even at home given the way Internet service providers are behaving. ProXPN secures that by creating an encrypted tunnel between you, wherever you are, and the ProXPN servers. And I should say really wherever they are because they're all over the world, not just the U.S., but also London and Singapore and Amsterdam. That is another nice benefit. It means when you emerge under the public Internet, you emerge with that IP address, that locale, so that you can, say, uh, bypass geographic restrictions. You don't have to worry about your ISP spying on you. You certainly don't have to worry about using an open access spot at your local coffee company. I'm really a fan of ProXPN. Complete online privacy. 512-bit encrypted tunnel. Um... OpenVPN, or in, uh, if you have a platform that doesn't support it, PPTP, although uh, now with the ProXPN mobile app, you can use OpenVPN on both Android and iOS. Yeah, they've got Android and iOS apps now. Their software for Windows and Mac offers advanced controls. You can select ports, connect at startup, even select which program should be shut down if your anonymous connection is ever interrupted. Turn off the BitTorrent quick! <laughs> no, you would never do that. Uh, I think ProXPN is a fabulous choice for anybody who wants to protect their privacy online, and I invite you to try it right now. If you visit ProXPN.com slash twit, it's a special page. It'll give you information for twit listeners, Security Now listeners, but it'll also give you a very special deal. Now, normally ProXPN premium accounts, the top of the line, the creme de la creme, the gold platinum silver account is $10 a month, $75 a year. 
But when you use our SN20 offer code, you'll get 20% off, not for the first month or year, but for the lifetime of your account. SN20, 20% off means it costs less than 5 bucks a month on the yearly plan to secure your connection full time. And of course, if you're not satisfied, you can cancel within seven days for a full refund. ProXPN.com slash twit. The offer code SN20. ProXPN does accept payment through Visa, through PayPal, and now Bitcoin as well. ProXPN.com slash twit. Give it a try today and be safe tomorrow. Back to Steve and questions for you, Mr. G. If you are ready. Our listener-driven potpourri number 184. Oh, I love it. Question one from uh, Ernie Moreau in Kelowna, British Columbia, Canada. He says, I'm part of the problem. Oh, no. Ernie, not you, too. Stephen Leo, I had five of the 45,029 servers that were used in the NTP monlist attack. Whoa. Which yeah. really frost my apples. When I first came across the attack, it presented our, itself as our servers maxing out our bandwidth, which could happen legitimately uh, if you know if we're really busy. Although it did seem suspicious, so I allocated more bandwidth, an extra two hundred bucks, or at least until I could investigate the issue. Uh, I used to use the NTP network time protocol daemon running on our servers to update my servers' clocks. That's how people use it, of course. It was something that ran in the background. I didn't worry about it. Never gave it a second thought. Well, I'm not running it as a demon anymore. I've set it up in a cron job to run every so often to update the clock. There has to be a better way, but I don't want to be part of the problem. I've attached the notes or the notice I received from my Internet service provider. Thanks for all you do. You make a big difference in bringing secure practices to the masses or masses of geeks then to the masses of the masses. Ernie Monroe, proud spin-right owner. I don't see it attached, but... Uh, I'll take no, I have it here. Yeah. Um, it, it was long, and I won't read through the whole thing, but I was very impressed. First of all, one thing I didn't mention when we were talking about any kind of network, you know, any kind of Internet reflection attack is that the attacker, we, we understand that the attacker is spoofing the IP of the intended target, when they send packets to, for example, an NTP server asking, you know, giving it the monolist command, that's a UDP packet, um, which is, is carrying as its return address the target's IP. So they send the packet to the NTP server, which responds to the victim. But what that means is the, all of the incoming traffic to the victim is carrying the legitimate IP address of the NTP server. That is, that is not spoofed and, in fact, is not spoofable. It's because the server is behaving itself as, it's, as it expects it's supposed to. It believes it's responding to a legitimate request. So that means that anybody at the receiving end of the, of the attack knows all the IPs of the servers that was where essentially was DDoSing it. So Ernie's letter says, hello, we've received a complaint against your server at IP address. And he has that blanked out in what he attached. Please, but the, you know, the IP is given, which is how the note was sent. Please ensure 
that this is dealt with. If you fail to fix the issue and respond to this ticket within 72 hours, your server may be shut down. A public NTP server on your network running on IP address, and there it is again given, participated in a very large-scale attack against a customer of ours Hmm. today. Interesting. Generating UDP responses to spoofed monolist requests that claim to be from the attack target. Please consider reconfiguring this NTP server in one or more ways. And this thing goes on. It was very comprehensive. And I was very impressed that, you know, that he received this kind of notice. And presumably, um, this is the response which, which, at least to this attack, we don't really know, you know, what's being done in all the various cases. But it is the case that you could record all the IPs flooding you. And if you're able to reach the person in charge of the IP send them a letter like this and and see if you can get them to fix their problem. Uh, certainly, I mean, if, if Ernie's reaction to being the host of this, of a small fraction of this attack is any example, everyone involved in, in inadvertently generating bandwidth is aware of it because their bandwidth just goes crazy. Yeah, you know, that makes I mean, they're, sense, they're, yeah. Yeah, their their own local connection is being saturated as their servers are trying to respond at this four hundred times magnification of of the attack. So very neat. Wow. Thanks for thanks for, yeah. for sharing it. Yeah, telling and admitting it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Aldo in Chicago has a question about port forwarding. Thanks for all the hard work on the show, Steve. Here's my problem. I have three Xboxes in my house. Each has a static IP. My router has turned, uh, I have turned off UPnP in my router. So I manually configured the router to forward the various Xbox Live ports to an Xbox. That Xbox passes its network self-test just fine. However, the other two Xboxes report NAT being strict because I'm not port forwarding. Actually, it's strict because he doesn't have UPnP turned on. Is there a way to forward the same ports to multiple IPs? Oh, that's an interesting question. Isn't that little background that UPnP is a Microsoft technology universal plug and play specifically for Xbox and Xbox is on networks where you've turned off UPnP will complain and you won't be able to, uh, I think, uh, join games others have started or no, you can't start your own game, something like that. Well, and we know that that for people who are security aware, security conscious, they can disable universal plug and play, and then map a collection of ports, statically mapping it's called, through their router. There's quite a few, that, too, as I remember for uh, the Xbox. Yeah. So what, what, what they do is they, they add mappings where they say any incoming traffic to my public IP on port whatever, you know, 4362. It's, I'll get, you want to know? It's 88 UDP. 3074 UDP and TCP, 53 UDP and TCP, and, of course, port 80, the uh, HTTP port on TCP. Yes. So you have now, to have those ports open and forwarding. Now, so, so the idea is that universal plug-and-play would allow the Xbox to do that for you. It would allow the Xbox to say to your router, hey, I need those ports on the outside sent to my IP. So 
So, so here's a problem. The problem with universal plug and play we've talked about a lot is that unfortunately it allows malware in your compu- in, in your network, and we know there now is malware that is universal plug and play aware to do this. So Aldo's got a problem, and that he's got three Xboxes, and he wants universal plug and play turned off for security. He's figured out how to map things, but obviously, the, the, so the problem is in your router. You have to have it go. You say any incoming traffic on this port goes to this internal IP. That'll be, you know, 192.168.0.12 or something, whatever he's got his Xbox set for. The problem is it can only go to one IP. So here's the solution. You put your three Xboxes behind... Their own NAT router. Ah. <laughs> route to the router. With universal plug and play enabled. And then you and you give you give that internal router a fixed IP on your external router, and you statically map the required ports through to the internal router. Clever. And that allows you to have multiple Xboxes. Essentially, all doing universal plug-and-play mappings internally, which is safe because it's just going to be them on that little internal subnetwork. They're all sharing the single IP to which the external traffic is aimed, and uh, that ought to solve the problem. You and, are, you know, routers, routers are cheap Routers are cheap, days. and you don't need to use a particularly good router for this, like, uh-uh. you know. Yeah, use one that you don't want to put on the outside that you that you don't trust with the uh, out on the real world. Right, right. Uh, Lou Rubenfeld or Field wandering around Pennsylvania explains why he wants to obfuscate passwords. Though dot dot dots we've been talking about. Yeah. I listened to your recent podcast about passwords and the ridicule you've made about ongoing <laughs> obfuscation of passwords and they're being entered. I have one very good use case. I'm often presenting via projector in meetings and need to log on to a website or application. When doing so, I frankly don't want to broadcast my password to all those viewing. Just one good reason to keep obfuscating. Love the podcast. Keeps me thinking on my commutes. And, of course, I use SpinWrite regularly and therefore have no horror stories to share. So I wanted – this is on behalf of Lou and also the other thousand of you. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it was half of the email that I received was people telling me their own reasons why it's important for them to have passwords obfuscated. And uh, it's, it's and one I read was interesting. He said, you know, it helps people understand that this needs to be a secret. And I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting yeah, take on it. I, I hadn't thought of that one before. But mostly it's all the instances which people were explaining, of which lose is perhaps the most obvious. It's like, yeah, clearly, if you bring up a web, you wanted to log on to a website during a presentation in an auditorium, you know, and of course, you know, we famously during the Sochi Olympics, we, we were, you know, there were all these people who were like, had their, their, the camera crews were coming in to control rooms and, and various places where the Wi-Fi passwords were written on the whiteboard. It's like, uh, whoops, or, you know, or up on the screen. So, so it's, you know, and, and that's why the, the, the trade-off I'm 
using. Oh, come to think of it, though, iOS still has a problem then. If you used, if you were logging into a password under iOS in plain sight, people would not see the password after you had entered, entered it. But if they were quick, they'd see the characters as you were entering them. So, um, you know, got, got the way iOS shows you the one you've just typed. As a, and, of course, they did that as a compromise for the keyboard, which is, you know, such a problem. So that does uh, no good at all. I mean, you might as well just unobfuscate. Right. Anyways, and what I'm doing in Squirrel, of course, uh, and you can see this on, on the operation page that it's up right now, is I make it very simple to show the password if you want to see it. But by default, it will always be blanked. So you'll get, you know, big dots as you're typing it in. But underneath it, that there, there's a link for clearing it if you want to start over. And there's a link that says show. And after you click it, of course, it flips over to hide. So you're able to toggle That's a way whether to you... Whether, uh, that is, that, that to me, that ought to be there in every case. Is the option to show it if you know it's safe. If there's no one looking over your shoulder, if there's not an auditorium looking over your shoulder... And you just, especially a complex password on a touch screen. Good luck Horrible. entering that. I mean, I can't enter my own Wi-Fi password. It's impossible. I use cut and paste in order to, to enter it, you know, on my various devices. Patrick Warren in Georgia, Vermont. That's confusing. Uh, Warren <laughs> wonders about Squirrel and Fido UTF. I was hoping you'd take a few minutes on a Q&A episode to compare and contrast Squirrel, your solution, with uh, uh, solutions like a YubiKey with Fido UTF support. Do they work together, compete, answer different problems? So I am, I'm not an expert yet on Fido. I'm going to have to be because, I'm, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm sure I'll have to put up a page uh, on the Squirrel, pay, uh, you know, like, like a how does Squirrel compare to Fido since Fido is the, is the, you know, Fido is the acronym, F-I-D-O. It's, it's kind of funny that we've got a, you know, a name for a dog and a squirrel as the <laughs> two acronyms. Which one chases the other? <laughs> here, Fido, here, Fido. Um, stands for Fast Identity Online is what the, the Fido acronym stands for. Fido comes in two completely different flavors, which is the first thing that begins to make it confusing. There's U2F which is universal two-factor, and UAF, which is, I don't know what it is, universal authentication framework? I don't, I don't know. I, made, I just made that up. UAF, whatever it is, that's what, they, that's, that's what the other one is. And they are not the same. Um, essentially, U2F is sort of what Ubico and Google have been doing and, of course, they famously joined FIDO recently, which is sort of where FIDO adopted the U2F alternative to the UAF, which is what, which was what was always in the FIDO project and what they were doing. Um, I have been a little curious, and I, but I cannot say I've done a deep dive. I know a few things. For example, the U2F work with YubiKey and Google from a technology standpoint, it has to be a second factor. That is, it cannot be a single factor. 
And that's so that's one huge difference right off the bat with Squirrel. Remember, Squirrel is designed to el- completely eliminate usernames and passwords. Squirrel assigns you a unique, really long token. It's 256 bits, which is the equivalent of a 77-digit number. It just makes one up at random for you for every site you visit. It's a different 77-digit number right out of, you know, right out of the crypto. So that both identifies you and authenticates you. And so Squirrel just, you know, login just disappears if you're using Squirrel. The problem is that the universal two-factor, U2F in FIDO, and, and I verified this in the specs, they they don't use my clever approach for synthesizing public key pairs on based on the domain that you're visiting. That was really the the invention. I mean, the the, the light bulb that went off in my head was, wait a minute, if I use Dan Bernstein's uh, elliptic curve crypto, it allows me to use anything as a private key. Well, that means I could use a hash of the web domain name as the private key, which means that I can create private keys from web domains in a deterministic fashion so that every time I go back to the same domain, I get the same private key. No one knows what that private key is except inside Squirrel, and that's derived from the user's master key. Unfortunately, U2F and FIDO don't have any of that technology. They don't do that. They, when you go to a website, they create a standard key pair using random numbers. The problem, though, then, is that you need to hold on to all of these private keys and you end up with this keychain problem. So the way they solve that is they encrypt the private key and give it to the website to hold, which is kind of bizarre, but that's what they do. Um, so that when you when they go to a website, they say, give me my encrypted private key, which they then decrypt. So now they have the private key associated with that website. And then they go about proving that they're the owner of the private key in the same way the squirrel does. But so, so, so what they've done is they've offloaded the storage problem by by giving having the website hold all of the having each website hold the private key for them. But what that means is they have to identify the user first in order to get the website to give them the proper private key for the proper user, which is kind of a kludge. But it also means it can't be a single factor. Now. The completely different technology is, is the UAF side, and it's so complicated, <laughs> I can't figure it out. I've looked at it. I'll spend more time on it because obviously I do need to figure it out. Someone knows how it works somewhere, um, although apparently no one has it working yet. It's so complicated, and I shudder at the idea of needing to like write the server side of this. The, one of the beauties of Squirrel is that the server-side support is almost, I mean, like almost no crypto at all. It is trivial to implement, which I'm glad for because I would like Squirrel to win. Um, the UAF side, 
is like unbelievably complex. And unfortunately, it is based on the P256 elliptic curve, which came straight to us from the NSA. Oh, so, no. Yes. That's it is based. It, it's based on the curve where magic numbers were provided. We even know the guy's name at the NSA who said, here, use this number. And there's no explanation for why. Because well, we know it. That's why. Yeah. Both Bruce Schneier has said, no, you cannot trust this curve. And Bernstein has a page where he, he calls the curve malleable because, I mean, it's just like, no. And unfortunately, that's the crypto in in Fido, of course it is, and <laughs> and so it you know you got to again you got to wonder you know there's there's influence in these critical protocols and looks like Fido is under the influence of the NSA so that sort of maybe puts a nail in its coffin um, yeah we'll see but you know Squirrel isn't and explicitly doesn't and uh, um, and well, I'm let's use as the- hard as hard as I can to make it work. We'll use the charitable uh, interpretation that the authors of FIDO didn't know it was compromised and trusted NIST. Right. And and, and we'll know that when they change it, which they haven't yet. Oh, okay. (laughs) Oh, there you go. (laughs) John McDonald in Monterey, California, he says, save Windows XP. I have three computers in a local area network. One's Windows 8, one's Linux, and one's XP. They're all connected by real VNC. After April, of course, the XP machine will be vulnerable, I know. If I keep it on the LA, LA, but never use, oh, maybe it means LAN, L-A-N, yeah. but never use its browsers to go online. Oh, this is a question I get a lot. Will it be uh-huh. safe from hackers? It's on a LAN, but it's not going online itself. Can a hacker get to the XP machine when the Windows 8 machine or the Linux machine goes online? I want to keep the XP machine on the LAN so I can use its real VNC connection to see the Windows 8 laptop's small screen on the XP desktop's larger screen and control the Windows 8 laptop from the XP desktop. So, oh no, come on. Did he just say this? Will the XP machine be able to use Google Drive securely? Did he just say that really? And then uh, Eveline Snell in Eindhoven, Netherlands says, we all know what's going to happen. Support for XP will end April 8th, and it worries me a lot. Windows XP is a central element in my everyday business workflow. Not all the software I use will run without problems on Windows 7. Been there, tried that. I guess I'm not the only one with this problem. Can you think of ways to keep XP and mitigate the risks of not getting updates? Maybe I can isolate a PC from the big bad internet and have it access my internal LAN again only. Thank you for your great podcasts. Proud spin right owner and listener since number one, Evelyn Snell. So, okay. I, the, 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 the honest truth is I think concern over lack of security patches for XP is overheated Ooh, and good. overblown. Oh, that's good news. I Why do. Why do you say that, Steve? Well, I haven't used any since Service Pack 2. Patches? Yeah. Why My not? machine never liked Service Pack 3. It it broke it in some Uh-oh. way. And I removed Service Pack 3. And what was that? Many years ago? Oh, yeah. And I haven't... And it was notorious, service, by the way. You should try again because I think they fixed if, it. <laughs> well, I, I guess my point is 
I'm just fine without patches for XP um, because I do all of the other good things. Mm-hmm. I you I get no spam. I I don't click on links in spam. I am very careful with with what I do. I use Firefox famously with no script turned on, um, and and I have an, uh, one of my laptops stopped being able to update there was some and many people this happens to many people where some some update gets stuck and you it you know keeps saying that it's going to reinstall this update i've spent countless hours trying to unstick this laptop like looked everywhere i i can't do it and it's like okay well seems to be fine uh i use it i'm careful um so i mean so i i really do believe that that the the people should not be freaking out over the idea that they're not going to get their monthly feed of of patches from Microsoft. Now we just saw last week in, in the statistics that we that we shared about the virtue of not running as an administrator. One hundred percent of 2013's problems were that involved Internet Explorer were blocked. If you were not running as an admin, 100% of them. So, and we don't know for a fact that it's going to block all future ones, but, you know, it blocked most of the problems, just not being an admin privileged user. Yeah, but only 92% and, of the problems in general, just, right, you know, right. Right. So, I mean, so I just wouldn't hyperventilate. Every everybody. I mean, I, I, you know, you and I, famously, Leo, don't run third-party AV tools on our machines. I'm, I'm just careful with what I do, and I don't. This is not the normal advice I give people. I tell everybody run antivirus because, because I think it's generally a good thing to do. But if you behave yourself, I mean, it, it just isn't like. Like your machine will immediately become encrusted with malware the moment Microsoft Microsoft stops feeding your machines its monthly update. Um, hmm. I, I guess just, I'm not sure I agree with you on this one, Steve. Okay, I shouldn't disagree with the famous Steve Gibson. Oh. No, I recognize it's a. It's I mean, contrarian. I, I, you you understand yeah. that. <laughs> uh, and maybe it only applies to somebody who really understands the dangers. But I know. But the I've real never... issue of these exploits is that they. I mean, the reason exploits are an issue is because they don't require uh, user cooperation. That they that they take advantages of flaws in the operating system. Well, typically, I mean, the major vector is we, we, we've seen flash exploits, we've seen PDF exploits, and we've seen browser exploits. Yeah. So those, those are... are you, those you're not... You, I'm not worried about you with those, obviously. R- right. Well, I mean, that's really it. That, that's where all the problems are coming from. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, you wouldn't it, get CryptoLocker if you didn't get fooled by the ph- phony PDF and... And so right. Forth. Oh, or or click the link in email that said, "Oh, look, we have a payroll, you know, update for you that you weren't expecting." Right. It's like, "What? Wait a minute. I'm not right. I'm not expecting that." And so you click on the link and and, you know, and it runs the malware. So, um, okay, but to answer these guys' questions, if it's if a machine's on the land but not actively going onto the internet, do they are they vulnerable? No, you're not vulnerable. You're not. I would I would say if, in, increase your security 
switch over to you? Um, you know, many people asked, hey, how do I change my existing account to a a non-admin because I'm all set up right now. You know, all of my, you know, my, my username and all that. I can't create a new account and reinstall everything. And you don't have to. You create another account, give it admin privileges, and then change your main account to standard user. So you just demote it to lower privileges. So I would say do that. I would say if you're if you are an AV user, certainly, you know, third party antivirus isn't going to stop functioning. And we did hear that Microsoft is going to continue uh, supporting uh, the whatever it is, the little greenhouse that we've got. Security down in essentials our, or defending. Yes, yeah, security essentials. Is, is, that's going to continue for some yeah. time, too. Yeah, so I just I don't see it as the end of the world. It's 34 days, by the way. I've got my little you know <laughs> little down counter here. Uh, you know, do you not think it's the case down. though that the bad guys have got exploits under their you know in their pocket that they're not going to release till after April 8th because they don't want Microsoft to fix them. And after April 8th, all of the a vast trove, I would imagine. Of effective exploits will be released. We'll be covering it here. I and I don't. We'll have to see either way if that's the case. I mean, I would never suggest that somebody who isn't security aware. I would never suggest someone, some random user using XP and Internet Explorer, just you know, who's using a laptop and clicking on every link and every email that they encounter do this right but a a i mean for example both john uh and uh evelyn are clearly security conscious yeah. they, they're they're they, asking they the right huge, questions yeah they have a huge investment in the configuration of xp and you know it's not out they're not walking around in open coffee shops and and exposing it they have situations where they just sort of want to know will it still be safe and my and my point is it won't start to crumble the moment windows you know stops sending it its monthly updates it is still there it's still a a, a robust very mature operating system um, and you know, while it's true that we see that mistakes Microsoft is making generally reflect, you know, reflect all of the OSs all the way back, um, these things generally are things you have to go and get. They're problems you have to seek out in one way or the other. Clicking on links, going to malicious sites, getting, you know, flash uh, or, or old versions of, you know, running old versions of Java. So if my feeling is if you remove Flash from your browser, you, you don't have Java running, you use Firefox with no script, so you're not running scripts, um, especially, I mean, some of these machines, you, they're not even doing web surfing from. They're just, you know, they're, they're, they just want to be able to use the machine. I don't see any reason not to. I'm trying to think of a counterexample of something that you might get uh, just by remember the old uh, the old days of uh, uh, was it um, Melissa or Stuxnet and others which would they were network worms right? you're not concerned about right. a network worm no because now that we we've got uh, since Service Pack two we've got the firewall turned on right. everybody's behind NAT routers NAT routers protected you the only way you could get a worm is if you had a machine directly on the internet with and this is pre firewall either third party add-on or finally when microsoft 
you know, turned it on in XP or you turned it on before Service right. Pack 2 in XP. Right. That There you really had exposed ports, which, of course, is why I did Shields Up, was to let people know, like, oh, my God, these ports are actually open and exposed to the Internet. But, you know, those days are, are really – those days are really behind us. Wow. I'm going to have to readjust my thinking because I've, uh, I've been one of the people loudly banging the gong to get off XP. Well, I mean, there isn't a reason not to. I want it's it's time to move to Windows Seven. I will I will migrate myself. I mean, I'm hearing other people say I tried to use Seven, but things I use gave me a problem. So I'll, I I've got you know I I I have a, a machine ready to configure. Um, I will start moving my stuff over and just sort of take it easy. See what and happens. See how it yeah, goes. Yeah. yeah. Yoram Sneer is our next correspondent from Potomac, Maryland. He hmm. wonders about a squirrel selfie. <laughs> Highly, that's a well. That's a, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah, sure. You betcha. Hi, Leo. Hi, Steve. I've been listening for five years. No need to say more. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I'm developing an iOS application, uh, which. Accesses a centralized server and requires authentication. What happened? It went dark. I'm reading it, and the machine went to sleep. Oy, oy, oy. Now, don't read my password. Oh, good, it's dots. Um, which accesses an authorized server and requires authentication. I would like to allow the user to, A, start using iOS without any sign-in, the app, without any sign-in. Centralized server. Oh, sign into the centralized server, I guess. And B, start the app on another owned iOS device, then use the first device to authenticate the new device. I hope you're following all this. Do you think Squirrel could be utilized for such a solution? I would guess that server-side implementation plus some iOS framework can create a very strong solution for me and many others without the need for uh, for Squirrel password management application. In other words, can my app? I don't. I don't. I don't. I think there's something. There's a typo. I don't understand what he's saying. In other words, can my app be a squirrel management app for itself only? Can yeah. Um, now I hate the visual that's associated with this squirrel with this selfie. term. No, no, not that one. Oh, the notion of a headless squirrel. <laughs> that's what you're going to do right now. Because yeah, that's sort of what you want, and the answer is absolutely. I no one has ever proposed that before, and I hadn't thought of it before. And in fact, I wouldn't recommend that you use anything to do with Squirrel, although you might use some of the open source that'll be developed. But essentially, you could just use that core, the the core crypto that I documented in the very first days of Squirrel. That is, use Dan Bernstein's. Um, elliptic curve the the the, the ed25519 that's the signing part essentially the idea would be that you have your app generate a good random number and and it uses that with the with the server to generate a unique identity and then the server challenges the app by by sending it something unique a nonce which the app signs using its private key and the server verifies it with the public key. I mean, it's basically it's the underlying squirrel technology, but you really don't need all of the other paraphernalia that that uh, that squirrel uses. You just use 
that elliptic curve crypto core, um, which is all open source and well documented. And it's it's a terif- terrific way of doing, you know, in-app authentication without any sign in. So you can t- absolutely reuse that sort of the spirit of Squirrel um, uh, in that fashion. The spirit of Squirrel. And uh, you would call it a headless squirrel. A headless Unfor- that's Unfortunately, why it's uh, the spirit of it. Yeah. Andrew. Because the, mo- the squirrel died. <laughs> He's dead. And all that's left is the spirit. It's the spirited squirrel. Okay. Uh, Andrew McClashen in Melbourne, Australia has a correction about fresh Java installs. Yep. Steve, I tested your theory of a fresh install of Java and found there's a problem. I deliberately changed my Java security to allow it to be used in a browser. In other words, that's by, by, by the way, most browsers now it's off. It's on, by default, Java has to get approved before you can be used in the browser. That's a good thing. But then he uninstalled Java. So he disabled the security and uninstalled Java, downloaded a fresh install, and reinstalled it. It did not disable Java's use in browsers and was fully enabled until I went back to the Java control panel and applet to fix it. Please let everyone know. Cheers, Andrew. That makes sense because it's not Java that's flipping that bit. It's the browser that's flipping that bit. Well, actually, it's both of them. Oh, okay. Um, What he's referring to is that I reported my experience a few weeks ago where there was something I needed Java for, and I'd completely removed it from my machine. And so I downloaded the last, you know, the the latest Java 7, Lord knows what version it was, directly from Oracle and installed it on my system in order to have, you know, Java available here. And what I reported on the podcast was I got this very comforting dialogue that warned me that Java was not enabled in my browsers. And so I incorrectly assumed that that meant Oracle was doing the right thing, that they were now on fresh Java installs, not by default enabling it in browsers. Now, we still don't know if a system has never encountered Java before, which way that goes. But what Andrew wanted to point out was that when he had previously had Java enabled for use in browsers. And that is a Java setting now in the Java control panel, which you get under the oh, Windows control panel. Okay, that's a different thing then. I see. Yes. So okay. so, so you've got two sides. You, you can sort of think of it as like the Java is the server right. and the browser is the client. So the browser can disable its use of Java or Java can disable any use by browsers. So you can sort of do it at, at either end. I was I so I I erroneously assumed that a fresh install was saying we're not going to be in your browser unless you explicitly tell us to. And so now we don't know for sure one way or the other. But it's it is definitely not what I that, thought. That that makes sense now. There's two I mechanisms going on, and that's that's yes. that's I get it now. All right. Yes. So thank you, Andrew, for yeah. the update. So yeah, just be just go back a, when you install this correction. stuff and verify that it's turned off in the browser, which is the only safe way to have Java. Well, actually, turned off globally in your system. I mean, they 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 remember it was a few versions ago, many versions ago, actually, where they gave us a switch in the Java control panel where we could just turn it off so that browser plugins are all disabled. Ah. 
And so, but, but do it both places, turn it off in your browser and turn it off, you know, gl- so, you know, in your system. So you can use Java applets, but you can't, you know, J- Java applications, but you cannot bring up Java in your browser because, whoa, that's just not safe. A lot of people use Java, Java applications because they play Minecraft, which is uh, probably the single most common use. And speaking of which, Leo, my God, is that popular? Yes, saw, you noticed. Holy, <laughs> I was amazed. Four hundred thousand downloads in one day. Yeah, and then and it's like got a hundred million users. Yeah, wow. Yeah. It is. Oh. It is, and funny because it's just this three eight bit game. This is silly eight bit game. Incredible. Yeah, but people like it. Uh, it's what's nice about it is it's generative. You you're you're usually building stuff, which I think is really cool. Yes, John Charles, that's his first name in Chicago, Illinois, recommends a free trust no one alternative to Hamachi Tink. Uh, Long time listener, two thousand six show among the many things that changed my life and steered me into the software industry, where I am now gainfully employed. I'm in the process of catching up on episodes, and I heard in a re- recent Q&A a gentleman bemoaning the loss of the free version of Hamachi. I, too, faced a similar challenge when Hamachi dropped Linux support, or at the least very made it very frail some years ago. At the time, I found Tink, a no-configuration VPN, T-I-N-C. It's free uh, and does require at least one node to have a known IP, but other all other nodes are auto-configured. They find each other through the one common node, it's not like OpenVPN in that it is fully decentralized. Once a known as node is connected to the network, it sets up direct connections and all other edge nodes. But it is very fast and, and reliable for me to keep a connection to my father's computer in a different state. Not the computer. The, the computer is in a different state of the union. <laughs> not a different state of physical being. being, yes. If you had not researched... If you have not researched Tink, I would strongly urge you to do so as it solves many problems seemingly faced by many in the SN community and it is completely trust nobody. Thanks for the wonderful security advice and hours of entertainment. Proud owner of Spinrite, longtime listener, Jean Charles. So it's T-I-N-C hyphen VPN dot org. And I was not aware of it before John Charles mentioned it. And it looks very nice. I have not messed with it or played with it, but I wanted to bring it to our listeners' attention. It is 10 years old, so it's been maturing quietly on a back burner somewhere. And it's got broad cross-platform support. It looks like it's got very good RSA certificate-style security. Um, And it uses what they call a mesh network, meaning that, as he said, you don't have one central... um, server, but you do need one of the nodes to have a known IP. All the other ones connect to it, and they find out about each other from the one shared um, node, and then they establish direct connections to each other. So these guys refer to it as a mesh network where your traffic ends up going directly point to point. Um, it's described also as a zero configuration or no configuration VPN. I would not describe it that way, but I'm I'm impressed. They have a they have walkthroughs for configuring under different platforms. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, anyway, I just wanted to to raise a flag for listeners of ours who are 
technically savvy, and I know that we have a huge base of technically savvy users, um, this may be a, a solution worth taking a look at. It looks really nice. They've they've got you know installation packages. It's it's uh, again cross platform and all the bells and whistles. So thanks, John Charles, for for uh, making us aware of it. Uh, it looks like a great alternative. Tink, Glenn. I guess this is it. This is our last mm-hmm. one. Glenn yeah. in Maryland. He says, "Don't trust Foxit." I've been using it as my PDF reader since it was recommended here. Yeah, we've recommended it for years. I was just notified of an update. After installing it, found my homepage and default search had also been changed. And two additional programs had been installed without warning. Mm. I bet not without warning, but okay. Well, I'll try it. During installs, I, I watch for extra junk. Well, he says it has since become so yeah. common. And perhaps worst of all, in researching what happened, Foxit says the extras will protect you from download software, changing your homepage without permission. <laughs> this is very common, by the way, that the bad uh-huh. stuff says, I'm going to protect you. Foxit and all its friends. Your reason is we took over the homepage, so no one else can. Right. Foxit and all its friends have been removed from my system. I guess I'll give Firefox PDF viewer a try. That's too bad. It is. Now, the Firefox PDF viewer is not great. I mean, it's there. Um, and it kind of works, really has font rendering problems and worse printing problems. So, and, and it's a memory hog also. When you bring up a PDF in it, it's just like, wow. You, you, I mean, you see it burn up memory. So, I mean, it, I consider it still in its early stages. Um, there are other plugins. So maybe something other than Foxit. But anyway, I did want to give everybody a heads up about Foxit because as you know, we, it has been our go-to uh, suggested uh, PDF plugin uh, for Firefox for so time for some for so long, and it's you know unfortunate. They, I mean, given again, you haven't verified this. I've not verified it independently, uh, but I I wanted to you know. It's frankly not word. surprising. You know, it, no. we've talked about download.com and how you know the oh god, too it's useful impossible. downloader. Yeah, you know, Michael downloaded uh, Lisa's son Mike downloaded something from download.com, and I had to remove. I think it must have been 10 pieces of spy, you know, not malware per se, but junk, junk, junk uh, from the system. Yeah. So, and by the way, I'm mad at you. This program rails. Oh. Stealing my life. <laughs> oh, you got a circle. So you, you're, you're able to create other, you can create Y connections to send the trails, the, the, the trains around in both directions. Oh, yeah. I mean, now. what I've learned, the oh. last thing you want to do with this game is uh, make a uh, uh, right angle. Everything yes. should be. Everything's got to be loop de loops, right? Isn't it wonderful, Leo? Yeah. Well, yeah. Wonderful is <laughs> one way to describe it. If by wonderful by you mean taking over your life so that you can't live and do anything anymore, yeah, wonderful. I know. I know. It is so. Wonderful. It's really a fun game. It's uh, what was it? A couple of bucks. Rails. There's a there's an Android. Two ninety nine. Two ninety nine. Android. Uh, as well as iOS, um, and the and the Android version is exactly the iOS version. There are similar games to this. Uh, if you look for a railroad traffic control games, uh, even Flash games on the desktop, and I know you don't do Flash, but uh, this is really good. I've been running it an awful lot lately. And I'm glad. How I'm far so have you glad. gotten? I'm so. It's I'm, hard. I'm, you know, I, I've stayed down wanting to see how high I can get my score. Yeah, on you're trying to get level. all the stars, right? Yeah. 435, I think, is wow. the most I got on level one. Yeah. 
It, well, and then you get these stupid little slow guys, and then yep. there's these gray trains that can't be routed at all. You have to get them directly to a station. And <laughs> oh man, I hate this game. I blame you, Steve. See, I'm trying to find a good a good extension. To, yeah. You always want to you always want to escape escape hatch for any. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. Where where, where, where you can, if, you if you need to to route a train down yeah, a spur. There you, there you go. See, because I got another yeah. one coming this way. So quick. Quick, get that yellow little push cart out of the way. Ah! Oh. <laughs> I hate this game. I hate you. No, I don't. I love you dearly, and I thank you for introducing me to yet another addiction. There are so many that I owe Steve Gibson to, including Cabernets, coffee, and rails. Steve joins us every Tuesday, 11, I'm sorry, 1 p.m. Pacific, 4, let me pause that game. I was doing pretty well there. 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. <laughs> Don't want to lose it. Don't want to lose that one. <sighs> 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 2100 UTC on twit.tv. Next week, we're going to talk about the Apple security document. Full, deep analysis of this fabulous document that Apple uh, finally deemed to publish and disclose. I'm really pleased about it, and we'll... Uh, We'll have a great podcast. Good, 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 good. Um, so do watch your live. If you can't, though, on-demand versions made available. He has some at his website, grc.com. 16 kilobit audio uh, for, you know, bandwidth impaired, but also uh, transcriptions, which are really great. Thanks to Elaine Ferris. Does a good job on those. Uh, he also has, of course, SpinRight there, grc.com. SpinRight's the world's greatest hard drive maintenance recovery utility. Shields up to test your router. Unplug and pray, all sorts of stuff. Decombobulator. Uh, decombobulator. Does anybody still use that? I don't know. It's there, though, in case you it need it. It gets downloaded. Does it really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Somebody's still running Windows 95, I guess. Um, lots of stuff, up-to-date stuff, as well as uh, the good old days, and passwords, and all sorts of good things, and diet information. Uh, if you want uh, full-quality audio and video, we have it here, twit.tv slash sn for security now. And, of course... Security Now is uh, is carried on every podcatcher and Stitcher and iTunes and the Xbox Music Store and all those places. So you can subscribe there and just get every episode when it comes out. It's nice to get all the episodes, get the full collection. And that's at our website, twit.tv slash SN. Steve, thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Leo. Security.